0: Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold.
1: Good evening, everybody. I'm the Vernomatic, and welcome to this week's show. As always, new content drops every Thursday night. Visit themetalmayhemroc.com for direct links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasting content. While you're there, download some past shows, subscribe, review. That kind of stuff helps the bottom line. Sign up for our email newsletter mailing list. There you'll receive weekly updates on new shows, merch promos, and free giveaways. Now, tonight's show, it's a fun one. We're re-airing the Andrew Robleski interview from September of 2020. Andrew was second chair on the recording of the Metallica debut album, Kill Em All. It was recorded right up here in Rochester, New York. And Andrew shares many behind-the-scenes anecdotes and um, just stories about, um, becoming friends with the guys, uh, building a friendship with Kirk. Now Kirk was in the band for about, you know, a month and there, you know, the guys were really young. So Andrew was right there and it's one of our more popular episodes. I think it's the second or third most downloaded episodes we have, and we have close to between 80 and 90 episodes. So it's a fan favorite. I have on the line our old friend from Rochester, New York, Andrew Robleski. Andrew, welcome back to Metal Mayhem ROC. How are you, man?
2: Hey, John. I'm doing great. How you doing?
1: We're doing excellent. It's uh, middle of July. Things are back to sort of normal. Rock and roll shows are going on. The weather's great. And we are doing a best of tonight. I just mentioned to you off air that the episode that we did last fall the interview when you uh shared your exhilarating story and remembrance of when you were second share on the Metallica Kill 'em All recording back in 1983 that's our second most popular downloaded episode that we have in uh, the close to 100 episodes that we've done here so it's a popular one and uh we're going to share it again but i wanted awesome. yeah i wanted to touch base with you and couple things see um what's been going on in the last eight months any outpour of attention or any feedback from that episode and i think you have a uh, fun story and uh, updated news that um you're going to share as an exclusive today for this uh re-air what do you have
2: Well, it's been since um, that episode originally aired. You know, I've had a bunch of friends that maybe I haven't heard from for a long time. Some old uh, high school buds that uh, reached out to me via Facebook and said that they heard it and they thought it was real cool. They didn't know that I was involved in in music back in the 80s. And then um, the most exciting part of what happened because of the episode was that um, I actually got in touch uh, with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, um, we talked and because I have the only pictures from that recording session. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, of of, um, you know, everybody. And so, um, I donated the pictures, all the pictures uh, to the rock and roll hall of fame. They now uh, own them. I'm excited about it, you know, because they're going to rotate those pictures through the uh, displays. Uh, my pictures on one of them with, um, Lars, uh, at the control board. And, uh, that was right before, uh, we recorded, um, anesthesia pulling teeth. So, uh, it was kind of uh, it's one of my favorite pictures and, uh, I'm excited. You know, I, I, I've had those pictures, uh, kind of hidden away just to myself, never showed them to anybody. It was kind of just like a private thing. And then I got to thinking that, um, that was kind of selfish and that everybody needs to see these pictures. So now they're going to be on display at the, at the hall.
1: Andrew, how many pictures are we talking? Is it three or four, or is it a couple rolls?
2: It's a couple dozen. It's a couple dozen pictures, all candid stuff. Um, uh, there, I think one of my favorite pictures is uh, when um, Lars was warming up when we moved his drum set up into this uh, old uh, bathroom, this old men's room uh, for the acoustics, and we had just gotten him set up, and you know he was practicing. I took a picture. That's when... If you ever read uh in a couple of books that's been written about him, that's where uh he started seeing the ghosts walking by the hallway up in that isolated uh, area there, so mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite pictures and uh, it's just um it's just some good stuff. I think everybody would like to see him.
1: any idea how the uh, Hall of Fame found out that you had them
2: um, i I actually think it was your podcast. I think it was your show um it it started going a little viral, and um that's how we got in touch with one another and I guess it was just meant to be so
1: yeah i I had a chance to see a couple of these pictures, and these are great pictures folks uh cliff Burton, many a cliff burton the the guys you really see these are pictures that have never been seen, so thank you for doing your part, preserving those, and you know not letting them be exposed onto you know the internet and these are really uh, one of a kind and it, they should be in the rock and roll hall of fame besides your opinion on the hall of fame they're in a place where someone in a will respect it and take care of these artifacts cuz they truly are one of a kind
2: yeah yeah and i i you know as much as um when I was talking to the, the the gentleman in charge of this whole kind of transaction and donation and stuff like that, I put in my good word. I said, you know, metal really hasn't been uh, fully represented by the the rock hall of fame. And I think it's about time we start getting some more of the, of our uh, famous uh, metal people in there. He goes "Uh, point well taken.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, well, let's get a little more Judas Priest and all your maidens in there and a little, little less, uh, you know, the kid and play and crisscross. So,
2: uh, yeah, <laughs> so. enough said.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, uh, thank you for uh, taking care of those pictures. You know, we'll stay in touch, but thanks for checking in today and best of, uh, you know, the rest of 2021.
2: Yeah, you too, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope to uh, grab a, maybe a cold one with you soon.
1: Okay. Take care, Andrew.
2: You too, John. Thanks.
1: Bye. Bye. Okay, there you have uh, Andrew Robleski. Great dude. The stories are endless. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do the re-air. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate the support. Enjoy the summer, folks. It goes quick. And always remember, keep it heavy. friends of the metal mayhem roc podcast vernamatic here inviting you to get those horns up and to join us live monday nights 6 to 9 p.m. eastern time for metal mayhem roc live we crack the vaults open and play the best of the metal for the last 50 years get in the chat room Meet other bangers from around the world? Send me a request and I'll get it on for you. That's Metal Mayhem ROC Live with me, the Vernomanic, Monday nights, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on netmetalstation.com.
0: Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold.
1: Well, you know us, we're always doing our share to keep it heavy. That's what we do here. Metal Mayhem ROC. I'm your host, John, the Vernomatic Verno, and tonight we have an observance show. We're tipping our hat to the late Cliff Burton, original bass player of Metallica. This past Sunday, it was his 34th anniversary of the passing of Cliff in a tragic bus accident. Back in 1986. And we have an exclusive interview for you tonight. Andrew Robleski, he was the second engineer on the recording of the Metallica Kill 'Em All album in 1983. The band recorded it up here in Rochester, New York. Andrew's here for the first time, sharing anecdotes, stories about recording the tracks, details about the photography of the album, and just overall general. Cool stories about hanging out with the band and getting to know them at a very, very early age. So Andrew will be joining us a little later. But before then, we're going to visit with Metal Mayhem correspondent The Cranker from San Diego, California. Now The Cranker, he was part of the Metallic Overdrive radio show from the mid-80s that befriended Metallica. The Warhead and The Cranker, they're two of the jocks that did this Metallic Overdrive radio show. They became friends with Metallica, drove them around, showed them the sights of Rochester, you know, hung out with them after hours. So the Cranker's going to give his insight as to his experience with the band and some follow-up as years passed. So we're tipping our hat to the late Cliff Burton. It's a treat to get to know Andrew Robleski, the engineer that did the album. Metal Forever Mark, my partner in metal crime, He's in the production studio putting together a finishing touches on an exclusive interview with Sean Peck of Death Dealer. So he'll be back with us in the next couple weeks. But until then, you have tonight's show, the Cliff Burton Observance Show. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. And I think I see the phone ringing. We got a light in the studio. Here it is. The Cranker from San Diego. We'll talk to you soon, folks.
2: Oh boy, this is gonna be fun. I haven't made a crank call in years. Now,
0: now, live from San Diego, California. Metal Mayhem ROC correspondent, The Cranker. I know time for cranks like you. The Cranker. Get ready for a review of a classic album or hear classic metal stories from back in the day. Time for The Cranker. For The Cranker. For The Cranker.
1: For The For The Cranker. For The Cranker. How you been, buddy? What's going on?
3: Hanging loose, little fan, just drinking a beer. Nice. Playing man. some Metallica.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, um, this week we're uh, doing a little flashback episode. Sunday was the 34th observance of the passing of Cliff Burton. So we rounded up a few of the guys that had something to do with meeting Cliff, meeting the band back in the day when they spent uh, a month or so in Rochester doing Kill 'em All. And who better to contact than the cranker?
3: I was I was there. Yeah. Well,
1: what do you know? Uh, and what's your experience with the band? And feel free to start from the beginning and tell us what you feel you can tell us.
3: Okay, I could go way back to the very beginning, to the Kerrang tape trading days, and uh, that's basically where it all started. Like um, I had acquired the um, the No Life to Leather demo from uh, one of the light men. His name was Patrick Scott. He was a light man for Metallica and he had an ad in Kerrang. And I wrote to him and he said, I got this killer band. Let me send you out the demo. And it was the uh, no life to leather demo, I actually handwritten the one that uh, that Lars did. And so I had the demo, and with that demo, <clears throat> there was a little card. It was it was called Metallica, and it was a power metal. It was a, a calling card, like a business card. Yeah. And it had a, a phone number on it. So I remember I was sitting around listening to the demo one day. And I said, "What the hell? Let me give this phone number a call, just for the hell of it." So I call the number. Two or three rings go by. Guy asks, his "Hello," and I say, "Hey, this is the Cranker man at the House of Metal." I said, uh, "I started asking questions about the uh, the demo." He goes, well, "I'm Ron McGovney. I'm, I'm the I'm the bass player." So it was actually Ron McGuffney's phone number on that calling card. So we started talking. He says, "Let me. T- I'll tell you what. I'll send you a couple t-shirts. You know, since you're so into the band." He sent me some flyers, both that they did, the whiskey and the Troubadour back then. And then he sent me two um, Metallica Young Metal Attack t-shirts. It it was just really cool of him to do that. That that was basically the first person I ever really met Metallica was Ron McGovernie over the telephone.
1: Okay. And uh, uh, what what year was this? This was 82. 1982,
3: I got the demo. I would say probably in the fall, maybe... uh, no, I actually got it in the summertime. Uh, I actually had an 82. And, and I was cranking the, the demo, and I was turning it on everybody in Rochester. and pe- We had They had a little underground call following in Rochester right from the very beginning, from that No Life to Leather demo. Mm-hmm. So me and Bob were, uh, somehow we found out that, that they might be recording at Music America. Right, Barrett Alley? Yep. So me and Bob, we go down to the studio, we knock on the door, they let us in, and we say, hey, is um is there a band here? Come in here called Metallica, and, and they go, Well, yeah, you guys know that group? I mean, I'll go, Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, we've had the demo for like a, almost a year now. Yeah. And he goes, You actually know this group. And we go, Yeah. We were talking to uh, Chris and, uh, and then the owner of the studio, I forget his name. What was his name again? Pa- Paul To pa- Paul. Yeah. So he, he said, I'll tell you what, they're in town right now, and they're staying on Boardman Street, you know, uh, right down the street. See, they they said, Why don't you guys go over there? knock on the door, introduce yourselves and hang out, make them feel comfortable. And we said, okay, sounds cool to us. So we go down there and it was a beautiful old Victorian style home. And it had a, the the door had a big glass window and uh, we looked through the window and oh my God, it was all these Metallica road cases in there with the Metallica logo stenciled all over. And we go, oh my God, they're freaking here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. me and Bob started flipping out. So I, I, he goes, go ahead, knock on the door. I knock on the door, lo and behold, who comes to answer? Cliff Burton, this big, tall guy had a, a joint hanging out of his mouth. He was stoned out of his eye. He was so cool. He starts laughing. He opens up the door and he goes, what's up, dude? Do we go Metallica? <laughs> and he knew we already knew about the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all of a sudden Lars comes running the door and, and Kirk, and they couldn't believe that someone actually knew about them. And so that's actually was our very first meeting. And, um, and it got to, from that point on, we would go over there every night and hang out with Metallica so what happens is kirk kirk and cliff had got their tracks done early so they, they were only in town for a couple weeks and then they split went back to san francisco so the final mixing had to be done on the album and james and lars wanted to stick around for that you know what i mean they were like we're not leaving and we're going to be here for the final mix so they were really in a bind and they're like oh my god going we do go? because they had no money they were broke and they had no place to stay they didn't know what to do i says look you guys, you can stay with me. I have a home on Melville Street. I got plenty of room. You're more than welcome. And they freaked out. They went, oh, my God, dude, for real. Hell, yeah, Metallica, you guys are staying with me. And it was a it was an every-night party. Basically, Bob would come and pick them up like about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, take them to the studio. I'd hang hang back at the house, and people come over, bring over beers, and just wait for them to come home. And, and we actually, what was really cool about that is they actually would come home with mixes of, like, say, a Phantom Lord, or Jumping the Fire, Seeking This, right? We were hearing, like, really raw mixes. Yeah. And Lars said, put it in the cassette deck, like, man, let's see what it sounds like. And all these people be hanging around, and here we are listening to freaking Metallica, right, you know, mixing right after they got out of the studio, hearing raw tapes. And I still have them all, actually. Lars let me double them all, which is pretty cool.
1: That's cool. Cranker, tell me the story about how uh, Lars either borrowed with air quotes uh, a shirt from your wardrobe for the back picture of Kill 'Em all or blatantly uh, no, stole it.
3: That's, no, no, no. That's how that happened was they were getting ready to, I was there when I went out, they were uh, getting ready to do a photo shoot and ours didn't have a shirt. And I think Bob, that was actually Bob's shirt. That striped one on, on the kill them all. That's actually was Warhead's t-shirt. That was one shirt he used to wear around town quite a bit. He happened to have it on, and, and and Bob just offered to him, said, here, just take this one. He just was in a bind and needed a shirt. Oh, okay. Isn't that funny how that happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's basically all it was. It, I'm telling you, these guys were, were you know, working with pennies back then. You understand what I'm saying? I remember Lars used to call his father a lot, and they'd have long conversations on the phone, and he was always trying to get his dad to wire of money. He'd be talking to Johnny Z on the phone. We need money, we're broke. And they said, okay, we'll do what we can do. And they always, you know, would get money, but it was just just enough to live on back then. You know what I'm saying? This is all during the recording of Kill 'Em All. It was, it was hard for them.
1: So the band wraps up in June of 83 and they end up going on the Kill 'Em All for One tour with Raven. A couple questions. One, did you go see him at the riverboat? And two, did you ever catch up or have any communication with the band following in the next couple of years?
3: Oh t- yes. A few times. Um, I'll tell you the story when they actually wrapped it up at uh Barrett alley music America, me and Bob drove them to the airport in Buffalo. So we, we took them to the airport in my car, dropped them off and they were flying back down to New York just to uh, get with Johnny Z because you know, The album was done, it was just a matter of another month or so and it was going to be released. We kept in touch. Bob said one day, hey man, Lars called, he wants us to come down to Queens, to Jamaica Queens where they're, where they're practicing with Merciful Fate. Anthrax was in the same room, Black Lace. You ever heard of the band Black Lace? They, they were in the... I have it. They were just another, another metal band from New York. They were uh, practicing in the same... It was a huge empty warehouse, it was just, you know, where bands would practice. It was in the hood in the middle of Jamaica Queens in a very, very rough neighborhood. My car almost got stolen. It was crazy. But, yeah, we just went down there and hung out and got to hang out with Metallica and jammed. And I got to jam with them. And uh, Lars and James got in a fight, you know, like they always did. And and I would have to be on the drums. And James pushed Lars, and he knocked over a cymbal, and it came flying. and cut me right above my eye. <laughs> it was a crazy night, man. <laughs> Crazy. That was like uh, summer of '83. Couple, maybe a month or so after they left Rochester. Yeah, it was like August. Yeah, somewhere around there. And then they came. Then they came to the riverboat. That you? you were you there for that
1: gig? No, no, I'm. A okay. l- I'm a little younger.
3: Oh, okay. So we um, we hooked up with them again at the riverboat, and I remember they came to town at the war memorial and. Me and Bob went to meet them on the tour bus, but they were really good. They were big time. You know what I'm saying? There was no more just hanging out like we were buddies. You know, now you're dealing with, you know, 200 people hanging out the tour bus and they all want to talk to James and Lars. You know what I'm saying? It was a big, totally different scene.
1: Well, I'm going to – don't sell yourself short because for that Master of Puppets show at the time, that's when I got into broadcasting, we had a chance to interview them mm-hmm. and hang out with them that day. And during cool. the, during the interview – I mentioned, and they asked uh, about Bob, Bob Thomas. Yeah. They did, and I'm sure they did, and <laughs> you know, and Kirk especially said that's one guy I'd really like to see, and so they did stop what they were doing and uh, you know looked up, and they did mention Bob. No disrespect to yourself, but you know,
3: oh no, that's cool. Oh, I had hooked up with Metallica the last time. I t- Two times, I got a couple more stories to go out here, but basically I, I was in the Navy and I got stationed in uh, NAS Alameda, which is right there in you know, Oakland, San Francisco, right there in the Bay. So I used to go to a lot of gigs at the Stone, <clears throat> see all the, you know, the, the thrash and speed metal bands and metal bands in San Francisco, the Bay Area. So one night I went to the Stone with a real good friend of mine, Aaron. We went to see, it was Megadeth uh, and Death Angel, and I think it was Overkill. But, anyways, back in those days, all the bands supported each other, so they would all hang out. And that's when, um, let me see, Kirk, uh, James was there, Lars was there, and um, uh, Jason Newstead was there. And that, that, that was um, one time when I saw them. I actually went to see SMOD and Exodus with Kirk, if you could believe that, and his girlfriend. <laughs> I used to see these guys uh, hanging around San Francisco. They all used to hang at the Omni, the Stone. They would be, you know, just be hanging out at the record vault and, and you know, and just kind of look up, hey, yeah, let's go see M.O.D., let's go see S.O.D. And I'm like, all right, cool. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah, there was a few times. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, at the sports meeting here in San Diego in, like, 1993, was it? So, where they filmed uh, the, the, the video. Uh, if I forget which one it is, you know, oh, know the one I'm talking about? Yeah.
1: Live binge and purge.
3: Live binge and purge. That's it. I, I was there for, uh, I, I went there early because I actually lived about a mile from the sports arena at that time. So I go down there and, uh, they were already there. I got there early about say three o'clock in the afternoon. They were already in town. The tour buses were already in the back and I got to hang out with James and Lars and, you know, we just talked about old times and they, it was a pretty intense night because they were recording that night. They were doing that video. So that was about the last time that I've seen uh, Lars or James you know what I mean I had a chance to talk to them They always remember me though that's a, the, the craziest thing you know what I'm saying they, they, it just goes right back to those that time 1983 at Barrett Alley Music America and they remember staying at the house they always thanked me for everything I did for them I used to feed them they were I used I used to <clears throat> my grandma used to give me food to take over the house because she knew that I had some, some big rock band was staying at my house. You know what I mean? She's so funny.
1: What, Gra- 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 yeah, Grandma Ferraro sending over uh, some Yawkees and meatballs? Yeah, I you know, Grandma's
3: there. Oh, they ate it up. Boy, they ate every, <laughs> yeah. everything. There was nothing left behind, trust me. They couldn't wait. I used to go to my grandma's every Thursday. They just couldn't wait for Thursday to roll around. It's so funny like, talking to you what I remember now. Funny.
1: Yeah. Cranker, that's awesome, man. It's just... um. You know, we've been doing this little flashback the last four or five months, talking with Ron Stein about Lakeshore and yourself. We've talked a few times. And, you know, Rochester used to be known as uh, Soccer Town, USA. I think we should start a movement and rename it Metal Town, USA.
3: A lot of great fans recorded at at, uh, Music America. We had everybody coming up there at one point. I I met T.T. Quick. I'm downtown one time uh, on Chestnut Street, I think. Wait in a delay, and there goes T.T. Quick walking across the street. You know what I'm saying? It was like crazy back then.
1: The Rods recorded. Anthrax have been up here for some stuff. Everybody. We had everybody, all the killer bands.
3: You know, you just had to be in the kind of like the circle to know when these bands were in town. You know,
1: you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, yeah. man. That's that's yeah. awesome. And, you know, you were there, and that's why we, uh, we lean on you, Cranker, because... You know, all due respect. You've been, like I said, <laughs> collecting these tapes for years. It's a passion and it bleeds through when we talk, when you post stuff. Cool. And you know, that's what life's all about. So
3: I hear you. I got I got tons of stories, man. T- tons of arcade stories and monkey. It goes on and on and on. I you know, I spent twenty eight years of my life in Rochester. You know what I mean? It was a lot of fun. Upstate New York, it was a great place to grow up.
1: All right, Cranker. Well, you enjoy the rest of the uh, hours of your day off, and um, we'll be looking you up real soon.
3: That's cool. I am I'm, I'm hope I uh, hope I was able to help you out a little bit, dramatic, you know what I mean, with some old-school stories. I'm, I'm always willing to do it for you. It's No problem, bro.
1: Of course. That's why we call on you, and that's why you're the Cranker. We'll talk soon, buddy.
3: I'm here. I'll talk to you later, bro. All right. See ya. Okay. All right. Bye.
1: This edition
0: of Metal Mayhem ROC is brought to you by Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Visit our lunch cart in the College Town District at Strong Memorial Hospital or hit up the late night weekend location at the corner of Monroe Avenue and South Goodman. Look us up at mrvsvending.com for catering, pricing, and availability. That's Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Now, back to Metal Mayhem ROC.
1: The Wisdom of the Cranker. Wow. That was some, uh, some interesting stuff. Imagine being him and his buddies back in 83 and hanging out with Metallica like that. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, like I mentioned at the top of the show, Andrew Robleski, he was the second engineer of the Kill em All Sessions. At the time, he was, uh, I think, like 20, 21, young guy, about the same age as the band. He found himself in a unique situation, and he's here tonight to share all the details. I want to thank everyone for joining us again tonight. Again, Thursday nights, 8 p.m., all major platforms. If you want to follow us on any socials, it's real simple. Just search Metal Mayhem ROC. We'll talk to you soon, folks. WLFE TV Radio. Andrew, welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. Hey,
2: John. Glad to be here. Thank you so much.
1: Of course. So it looks like uh, you got a tale to tell uh why don't we get right to it uh
2: well um i'm born in rochester and uh i went uh to the eastman school of music their uh, audio engineering program and after i graduated my first job was at a studio called barrett alley studios which is right behind the eastman school of music uh, and it was in the basement of the old rochester club which was a big uh art deco uh huge, huge nightclub in Rochester back in the, in the days, you know, the thirties and the forties mm-hmm. before world war two hit. And, um, then, um, Barrett Alley was taken over by, uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Curcio. Uh, and he changed the name to music America and, uh, Paul, uh, hailed from the West coast and, uh, was a producer for, he produced most of the Doobie brother albums.
1: Didn't um, Curcio originally live in Rochester? Went to the West Coast and came back.
2: Yep, he did. Uh, I think something, you know, something fell flat out there, and he came back here. He said, you know, this is where I'm from. You know, my I was where I was born. Came back here and got back involved in the music industry.
1: Okay, so you uh, hooked up with Curcio. How did you get in touch with Curcio and M- Music America?
2: Um, yeah, well, the studio was in the basement of the old Rochester club. And that was right behind uh, the Eastman School of Music. And one day, uh, you know, during lunch break, I walked out back and I walked in and I said, you know, I go to the Eastman, I'm going to be an audio engineer and I want a job. And they said, great, when can you start? And I said, six months. And they said, why six months? I said, well, because I'm going to grab a backpack and I'm going to backpack around Europe. And uh, then when I come home, I'll be ready to work. Hmm. And that's what we did.
1: <laughs> so, Andrew, if uh, if we were uh, putting this on a timeline, this would be when? 1981, 1982?
2: 82. 82, yeah. yeah.
1: Did you go to Europe and did you uh, have your gap six months or what, what happened?
2: Yeah, I went to Europe, backpacked for six months, came back home, and then walked back into the studio and said, I'm back and let's go, you know.
1: Sounds like this is when the fun begins. So, let me get my popcorn. Let's hear this.
2: Yeah, well, this is where the fun begins. Yeah, cuz the first project that I got to work on was with this um band from the West Coast. They had never recorded an album before. They're a bunch of little kids and their their name of their band was Metallica.
1: Why did Metallica come to Rochester? Why did they use Music America? Was it a deal they struck with Curcio?
2: Yeah. John, I think Johnny Z and Paul knew each other and Paul, you know, he, he, as the, you know, um, as the owner, he was, he was out there, you know, making the phone calls and, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, drumming up some business and, and said to Johnny, you know, you can come up here and, you know, we're, we're just getting our, our feet underneath us as a studio. Uh, I'll make it worth your while. I'll cut you a deal, you know, and then, um, uh, Johnny, you know, Metallica came from the West coast. Um, you know, they got rid of Dave Mustaine. They had, uh, uh, Kurt Hammett come out to meet him in Jersey in New York. Mm-hmm. And then they played a few gigs. They practiced. I know they practiced with, uh, anthrax in some warehouse where they slept as well. And then they, uh, tooled up here at the beginning of may. I think it was, it was like the first or second week of may of 83. And they landed in Rochester, and they um, we put them up in a house that one of the guys in the studio owned as a rental property, and we put them up in this single-family home off of Monroe Avenue. And uh, that's where they spent the next four to four to
1: six weeks. Was that the Boardman address?
2: Yep. Yep, it was on Boardman Street.
1: Yep. So the band comes up here second week of May, 1983, You put them up, and tell me about the production and how the recording process went.
2: Well, the head engineer was a guy by the name of Chris Bubach, and Chris was classically trained um, musically, okay? Paul Curcio, the guy who owned the studio and got the producing credits on the album, he you know, had done a lot of work with the Doobie Brothers, so he his, his music was a little bit different. And I was the only one in the studio that loved metal. Like, I always loved metal, right? From as old as I could remember myself, right? These guys came in and I was like, this is gonna be great. And, and everybody hated it, to be honest with you. Paul wasn't a big fan. Chris Bubach wasn't a big fan. And I'm not slamming these guys, it's just, it is what it is, right? They just didn't get it, and I said these guys are going to be huge, and they—they're like, "This is this—you can't even understand anything. It's too fast." And I go, "No, that's the thing.
1: <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs>
2: this was a new process to them. They had no idea what's going on. This is a brand new studio. It was like, okay, what are we going to do? And let's just—they just set up and they started playing.
1: Was there a Uh, a a production sheet did they uh because the the music they're recording was basically the no life to leather demo they were just reproducing that i'm just trying to understand if these if these gentlemen didn't have any idea like in the metal who was producing it was curcio credited as the producer or what was he really producing the music or was he just on paper the producer
2: on paper he was the producer he didn't really have anything to do with the production i mean chris Chris was the head engineer and and he didn't like things and he was trying to um, record uh, the guys in in what he thought was the way it should be in the in the realm of things um you know Lars and James with their very strong personalities and headbutting <laughs> Um, they they basically ended up getting the album produced and, and, and put down. When it came to mixing the final uh, sessions they, the guys the, the boys were not even allowed in those sessions. That's widely uh, been publicized. They didn't have any say in the final um, the final uh, mixing of things.
1: At this point was Zazula coming up and checking out progress? I know he was making phone calls, but did he come up to this come up to Rochester and check in at all?
2: He did. And Johnny was, he's a fantastic guy. Johnny came up with his wife and his two little kids. They were, they were tiny little guys. And I remember the first time they walked into the studio, here comes his family. I kid you not. Okay. Had the to toe leather and chains. Okay. <laughs> even the kids, even the kids. <laughs> and I said, all right, this is the most badass thing I've ever seen in my life because, and they were so nice, like just such, Nice people. Johnny and his wife were so wonderful. And uh, and they came up a couple of times that I remember. They Maybe they came up more, but I know at least a couple
1: of times. Now, you mentioned uh, Curcio, but you also mentioned the other engineer, Chris Bubach. That's the gentleman that went to uh, Fredonia and worked, yes. worked with uh, Carl Kennedy and the Rods on several projects.
2: I was just going to talk about Carl Kennedy and David Feinstein. And the Rods, yep.
1: Carl Kennedy was on Metal Mayhem ROC earlier in the summer, so he gave a perspective of this whole scenario from his point of view. That's why it all intertwines together.
2: Yeah, because Carl and those guys are all from uh, Cortland, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, Cortland and uh, Central New York um, metal scene. What we did um, actually in the spring, we started a a celebration of the Rochester metal scene. And we did a three part mm-hmm. series on the Lakeshore record exchange, Ron and Jackie Stein.
2: Now I have a picture. I wish I could find Ron because I have a picture of Ron. Cause I took Metallica to up to Lakeshore record exchange one afternoon. And I have a picture of Ron and, uh, and Metallica in the store. And I'm, I'm, I'm the only person in the world that has this picture. I can tell you that.
1: Well, we do have several photos from the uh, Metallica at the Lakeshore on our website. Maybe some. Yeah, they
2: made it. They, they ended up going back there again. Yep.
1: Okay, so we have the band in the studio. They start the production of start recording. Kill 'em all. How does the recording actually progress? There's been rumors that there were spirits in the drum room. Lars has been stated as saying symbols started spinning for no reason at all. Is any is any of this true?
2: So a little backstory here, you asked about like the production, you know, how did they, everything was out of a notebook that James had, you know, James had this notebook with all his lyrics and ideas for things. And that's was basically his Bible of, of their song catalog. And that's how they just went by how things were in this, this notebook. And I remember having conversations with those guys and I told them that, you know, I had some experience in music and, you know, electronic music and stuff and what have you. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, what is the greatest hard rock album of all time? They said, Led Zeppelin one. And I said, you guys know the story to Led Zeppelin one? And I said, no. And I said, well, it was recorded in an English mansion in, in the English countryside. You know, one of these things that you walk in and they have two giant, like, you know, sweeping spiral staircases made out of marble that mm-hmm. meet up at the top. And I said, they, they actually recorded everything right there with their amps and that. And they were like, that's cool. That's raw. And I said, it's the rawest album of all time, you know, hard rock. That's where the conversations started with, like, let's do something different. So the studio's in the basement of this place called the Rochester Club. And the, uh, on the next story up was the actual club itself. And they, they had uh, uh, the bathrooms, especially the men's room was this absolutely gorgeous giant room was all tile and what we ended up doing we ended up taking out all of the uh stalls in in the bathroom and opened it up and we put Lars's drum set in the men's room and ran all the mics and hundreds of feet of cable (laughs) down to the studio
1: and what was the end game of putting it in the in the bathroom for acoustics um
2: Oh, acoustics. Absolutely. Because, the you know, Lars plays hard. He's he's never stopped. And, uh, you know, the little drum um, corner or room that we had in the studio was not, it just didn't sound like how he played. We put his drums in this bathroom and when he hit the snare, I mean, you, you heard it for a mile. And so we got him all set up in there. And, um, I can remember setting up a lot of those mics and things going back down into the studio and we'd start and he'd stop, you know, cause all the guys were down in the studio and everybody had the headphones on and that, and he would stop and he goes, Hey, what's going on up here? And, and, and everybody's like, what, what, what? And he's like, how come Andy, that's what they called me. Mm-hmm. He said, how come Andy keeps walking past the door? And they said, he's sitting right here. And then that's, you know, then symbols started spinning. And finally he said, I, he was freaked out. And, you know, I mean, I I don't, and I, I didn't blame him. It was freaky. So then I had to go up there and sit with him yes. because it, it was freaky. There was all sorts of stuff happening up there. If somebody, and it's been very well documented, they call it the haunted mansion. It's not really a mansion, but I will tell you that if I don't really kind of sort of
1: believe in that stuff, but it was spooky as hell. <laughs> is that where the name of the song "Phantom Lord" came from? <laughs> I don't. Know. And, you know, hey, you never know. But uh, no, it was before no. they came to Rochester. Yeah. So, uh, so Lars is down in the bathroom, um, where the rest of the guys were in a traditional studio setup. Where did they play? All three play together.
2: Yep they all play. They all three played together, and then you know when needed, obviously you know, we would go back and over and do things, you know, we would put Kurt in a, um, isolation booth. And I remember sitting in, in him and with him, and he was practicing solos because, you know, Curcio, uh, well, I'm sorry. Johnny Z wanted Kurt to play the solos like Dave Mustaine used to play Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Kurt had just, he had been taking lessons from Joe Satriani, you know before he came and 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 before he you know when he was in well exodus right
1: yeah exodus
2: and he was taking lessons from joe satriani so then he you know he comes in and he doesn't want to play Mustaine's uh solos so you know johnny z is like well just start it off like Mustaine started it off and then do your own thing so i remember sitting in the guitar uh isolation booth with kurt and i have tapes of this somewhere john i wish i could find them i and just me and Kurt talking, and and Kurt working on solos for uh, some of the songs on Kill 'Em All.
1: Do you remember? Do you remember what solos or what songs? No, no. Who was giving them the direction? How much input did you have? Seeing that you have a had a history of being a heavy metal fan, did they turn to you, thinking that no disrespect to you, but you had a little more pull, and you were like the metal guy?
2: To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, you know, Chris didn't like metal. He he was in pain this entire time recording this album. And I kept saying, no, 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 Chris, that's good. You know, um, James, you know, Chris, when they started recording stuff, you know, Chris was suppressing James's guitar. He was like throwing it towards the back more, you know, and James was like, I can't, no, you know. I mean, these guys, James and Alarza have eagles, you know that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, but that's what made them great. And James was like, no, I need more guitar. And so, you know, it was like, Chris, you have to, it's gotta be more, the music has to be in your face. This is, you know, more, you have to put stuff more up front. And so we would record a song and then we'd put it on a cassette tape and then the guys and I, the five of us would pile into my 1976 Chevy Impala that I had parked in the alley. And we would play their songs in my Impala because Lars said, if it sounds good in the car, then it's good for us.
4: Yeah.
1: Because
2: that's where everybody was going to be listening to the music.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I've heard that before and that still holds true to today. I wish I still had the car. (laughs) Yeah. You still have the car? No, I wish I did. Oh, yeah. I wish you did. It
2: actually got totaled being parked outside the studio. You know, uh, somebody slammed into it and took off. And then that was the last anybody ever saw that card.
1: So when you were recording the album, this is an engineering question, did you start with hit the lights and do four horsemen and go into sequence of the album or how did how did the recording go? I
2: you know, I'm not a thousand percent certain. I I I doubt we went sequential. Yeah. As it shows up. No, I think that the, the the guys got to pick that was the final uh, options that they had was to pick the order of the
1: songs. When they did metal militia, were you there when they had the guests come in to do the mon, the march at the end of the uh, end of the song What was that all about?
2: It was just people in the studio just we um, the drum area was on a, just a slightly raised like one step up. In a corner and uh we you know we just took the drums out and just people that were there that's when they did the, the stomping of the feet it was like it was like a, like on um uh seek and destroy you know when they go into the um running anyway hiding yeah you will be dying a thousand deaths right that's a chorus. And that's one of the songs like I sang on because I happened to be there and they needed an extra voice to bulk up the back. And so it was a really low budget, uh, (laughs) a low budget album. I think, I don't, I don't think, I think that, um, I think they did it for between 10 and 15 grand.
1: I was going to say, I've read on several different occasions, 15 grand.
2: Yeah, summers between ten and fifteen sounds right to me. It was very low budget.
1: Who did the keyboard at the beginning of Phantom Lord?
2: Uh, there was a a guy that was a friend of Chris Bubach's. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was like he played like piano bars around Rochester. You know, you know, you know the stereotypical guy that plays piano in a in a bar, and he has like a a goblet
1: on top of the piano for tips.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) It it was a guy like that.
1: He's he's who did that. So, well, nothing more than just a little hum intro. Whose idea was to do that, to have a little intro on keyboards?
2: Every decision when it came to the songs and stuff, it was all Metallica. It was either Lars or James. Uh, Kurt, uh, Personality—he was a little quieter, a little bit more uh, calmer. Um, you know, Cliff had a, a personality that could fill a room, but when it came to decisions on what to do, it was either Lars or James.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, at that point, Kurt was in the band for you know five weeks, six weeks at the most. So you know, he's just getting mm-hmm. his footing. And when it came with, I've read throughout the years. You know, I've been a fan since the beginning too that cliff was one of those he didn't he didn't raise his voice much but when he did you listened so possibly he picked his spots when to have input and like you said it's Lars and James's baby it has always been that way so i'm sure yep. behind closed doors cliff had his input as to you know what he was what he wanted to do and that leads me to my next question Whose idea was it to have a bass solo on a, on a debut album?
2: Well, as Flea said uh, at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, it was one of the ballsiest moves of all time, right?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, it was, it was Cliff's idea. And uh, Chris was like, you know, he's like, no. And uh, I remember, you know, uh, a couple of days before that, uh, when Cliff was like just screwing around the studio, and he had this, this great distortion, obviously, as you can hear on the on the bass solo. Yeah. And I thought this was a great idea, and Chris was like, "This is the stupidest, you know, effing thing of all time." And I said, "No, this is going to be awesome, you know." And so, you know, Chris was like, "Okay, fine, you know." So they put uh, we put um, Cliff into the studio by himself, and all the guys are in the in the you know the booth right. And Chris says to me, he goes, all right, fine, you introduce it. And then that's when we opened it. And I said, bass solo, take one. And it was one take. And that was it. Now, the funny thing was, is that, um, you know, about halfway through there, a cliff started losing. I don't, I want to word this properly because it's very important. He started like, Not faltering, but he was losing where he was going. And so then James shoved Lars into the studio and said, start playing. And that's when the drums came in. And you can tell because Lars came in a little meek too, which is unlike Lars. This was all improv.
1: Wow. So so Anesthesia Pulling Teeth, that was a one-take deal.
2: That was it. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yep. Now, in the production world, you, you you label the takes. So as it turned out, when you introed it, bass solo take one, it turned out to be the only take there was.
2: That's it. One and only.
1: Was that at any point considered a segue into Whiplash? Because it just... Maybe just throughout the years, you could... You can't listen to Whiplash without hearing, you know, the end of Anesthesia Pulling Teeth.
2: Yeah, you know, that's been people have hypothesized about that over the years, too. I don't know. I mean, if anybody was immersed into the music, it was Cliff because Kurt was learning it. James and Lars were driving it. But Cliff was inside of it. Like Cliff, he lived and breathed the music. And he's, you know, and it's so easy. You know how, you know, when somebody passes away and everybody's like, oh, you know, he was a really great guy and the guy probably wasn't. Uh, Cliff Burton was a phenomenal guy. He was so fun. He Every time he saw me, he'd always go, rage on, Andy, man. <laughs> he always used to call me Andy man. And uh, I was always, always like, Ray John, Andy man. How much, and he was a lot of
1: fun. Uh, how much time did you have to spend with these guys outside the studio?
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I was usually the person who would pick them up from the house on boardman and bring them to the studio. Uh, you know, I took them to the first time they went to Lakeshore record exchange I took them there, but the best part of spending time with these guys uh, was um, one time Johnny Z was in town and it was a Wednesday night. And, you know, we kind of were wrapping up early because these guys slept in, you know, because we would drink all night. And um, that's where the whole nickname alcoholica came from, by the way.
4: Oh, sure. And
2: and and, um, so we. um, Johnny's like, you know, what what's there to do? And I said, oh, I said. On Wednesday nights I usually go to East Rochester because it's twenty-five cent beer night. Where peaches? So uh at no, at uh I think it was called Miller's. It was right on Commercial Street on the main drag there.
1: The main drag um, I, I live in East Rochester, so the main drag of uh East Rochester used to go to Miller's on Wednesday night for quarter drafts.
2: Yeah, and I forgot the it, it turned into another restaurant, but when you walked in you could go up the bar was right there, but then you could go up or you could go down. And so Johnny Z said, here's a hundred bucks. He gave me a hundred dollar bill. He goes, go have some fun. We piled into my Chevy Impala and we went to Miller's and a few of my buddies from Penfield were there. And I gave the bartender the hundred and I said, don't stop. And we, we, we had a couple of beers.
1: Wow. That's awesome, man. That is Awesome.
2: So here, no, you know what's awesome, John, is that I drove home, got them back home safely.
1: (laughs) You know, I was thinking that I was, I didn't want to show our age, but that was back when, uh, you know, the cop made sure you got you got home.
2: Yeah. So,
1: so you spent a lot of time with the guys. Um, They, like like you said, a lot of this recording, a lot of the recording happened between what six p.m. to midnight, or. Did they go even later?
2: Well, no, they would usually sleep in late. So, you know, I doubt there were too many times they got there before noon. So most of it happened, you know, between noon and midnight night, you know, it was just a couple of times, um, when I was working, uh, you know, the studio, the studio atmosphere was very, it was kind of like a revolving door. You know, there was people coming in and out all the time, you know, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't with him all, all 100% of the time.
1: Well, part of what we're doing here is we're celebrating Cliff Burton as 34 years ago this past weekend he passed away. Were there any other situations that you can recall with Cliff that you had a, some kind of kinship, a bonding? You mentioned it. he called you Andy Man. Can you share any other stories?
2: No, you know, not, not anything specific. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, obviously, but, um, he was just a very, very, uh, upbeat, uh, genuine, um, warming open, uh, guy, um, you know, Lars and James, uh, you know, James was kind of a, a tougher personality, uh, you know, a taller, bigger guy, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and Lars, has a, a really decent ego and, and Lars likes to get what he, and those guys would butt heads and Cliff would be like, all right, you know, that's it. Like, you know, and he'd be sometimes be more of a mediator when Kurt would just sit off to the side and just, you know, roll his eye. But, you know, Cliff was amazing. Um, and, um, he just, when he walked into a room, uh, you know, the energy changed and it was always positive. It was always up. And, um, it, it bothered me a lot, you know, after that, when he passed away in that bus crash, it just really hit me hard. It, I'll tell you, there's two deaths in music that really hit me hard. And, uh, Cliffs was one of them. The other one was when Neil Peart died, uh, the drummer for uh, rush.
1: Yeah. That's what,
2: that's... and, um, you know, those are two days I, I cried because, uh, they were people that I really admired and, um, you know, they were good, good folk, but, uh, yeah, Cliff was a great guy
1: how much interaction did you have socially with Lars? Um,
2: you know, we talked a few times. I, I played him some of the stuff that, um, I had created at, uh, in college. I went to Miami Ohio and I went through their electronic music program. And you and I were talking earlier about night, uh, razor blade tape
4: mm-hmm. back in
2: the day when we were used. And so one of the, um, One of the things that I played for um, Lars was um, I took uh, some uh, sounds of uh, uh, babies crying and frogs peeping in a swamp. And I cut that up and I turned it into uh, a big bell ringing, you know, exactly like the beginning of For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he's like, he goes, he goes, that's that's kind of cool. And I said, well, check this out. I said, and so. I did this thing and it sounded like helicopters coming in during the war, kind of like the beginning of one. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we've had these conversations where I said, you know, I've always thought that, um, you know, songs tell a story, but that you need, sometimes you need this other aspect with these not sound effects. I said, cause that's cheesy, but I've always liked it when we had these different things. And I used to play that stuff for him and say, you know, this is what I did here. This is what I did there. So my conversations with Lars were always like a little bit more uh, technical.
1: Or, you know, Kurt or imagery. Cliff,
2: yeah, imagery. You know, um, James wasn't. You know, James. You know, didn't, he wasn't much of a, a talker unless you know it had something to do directly with him. And you know, Kirk was shy. But you know, when he got to sit and talk to him by himself, you know, especially those times I spent with him in the isolation booth, you know, he's just a really good guy, and uh, you know, as Cliff. So,
1: you mentioned from the you mentioned from the beginning that you said to Paul Curcio and Chris that hey, these guys they have it and they're going to be huge. Two part question. One even though you are a young metalhead at the time, what led you to have that belief? And when, through all this, did Curcio and Chris, did they ever say to you, you know, you may be onto something here, and or these guys, even though they're not metalheads or metal fans, the brass understood that these guys were a cut above.
2: I don't think I ever got any, you know, Paul wasn't going to ever admit to anybody, you know, anything. (laughs) And Chris hated it all. Right. Um, I just told him, I said, look at, I said, you know um, I remember hearing a demo tape for, uh, uh, from Def Leppard, you know, when they were uh, recording their first album. And I said, these guys are going to be huge. I love this stuff. It's not really heavy, but that first, that first death metal, the Def Leppard uh, album, was really hard. It was good. You know, it hadn't been overproduced by Mutt Lang yet and all that stuff. Right.
1: On through the, I night. heard Metallica. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, um, so I, when I heard, uh, the Metallica stuff, I, you know, I always, um, and I always used to tell people like, it, you have to be able to feel the testosterone down where it counts. If you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. you got to feel it. And, um, you know, I I, you know, loved motorhead. And, you know, I was always a metalhead. And when I heard this, I was like, these guys, this is just like, I have not heard this before. You know, so many people had thrown them into the category of like, you know, punk and all this other stuff. I said, no, 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 no. This is like, this is good. This is fast, but it's, it's, it's good. And I don't, I don't, I don't have any real definition of to why I thought that it was just like this thing's, um, they strike you and you go this is going to be good or this is not going to be good
1: so the first time you ever heard metallica was when you started the started the album you did you hear yep. you, you didn't hear anything from the no life to leather demo nope
2: nope i had never heard that demo and that was the one that they kept making you know cassette copies of and you know just handing it out you know on the west coast and stuff to gain some popularity but i had not heard any of that i heard them when they got into the studio and i just that was I, that was my that was my jam you know there were other bands that came to the studio like uh you know the rods
4: mm-hmm.
2: um and the rods the rods were good but the rods it just wasn't like that metal uh you know um uh, manowar was another band that came to the studio i don't know if you ever heard of Manowar. they
1: were oh yeah 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 joey de ross the boss uh eric eric adams yeah the the, uh nice yeah 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 no i you know i grew up on hail to england and battle hymns and you know i've been a metalhead since fourth grade jamming kiss alive one um there you go so who else in rochester i'm i'm curious who what other bands I heard Anthrax made it up here for some pre-production for spreading the disease Yep, they came in right
2: after Metallica. Yep, Uh, you know, uh, they were with um, Force and Johnny Z. And when uh, Metallica left town, uh, Anthrax came in. And, you know, I remember talking to Scott Ian and the other guys, and they did some pre-production stuff because they had been practicing down in New York, you know, with Metallica in the warehouse uh, prior to Metallica coming up here and recording.
1: Well the the, um, the 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 story behind that I uh listened to the Johnny Z book uh the new book that came out last year when he brought Metallica in to the West east coast the band stayed with him for about a week and a half and finally they had a go he loved the guys but they they just had a go because they drank everything they ate everything they the the they're they're up the opposite hours that his family was so he moved them into anthrax's warehouse re, uh, rehearsal space and yep. they lived there. But the thing was anthrax lived in New York. So they went home at night and that, so you've probably heard the story too, but that's, that's yeah. the connection they have. And yeah, they're blood brothers. It's, um unfortunately mm-hmm. it's, I say this with all due respect. It's only fitting that, Anthrax was with them when they were touring the fall of 86 when the tragic accident happened with Cliff, you know? Yeah. Where were they you? They were friends. Yeah, yeah. Where were you when that happened? When you when you found out?
2: I was at my the very first house I ever owned was between Blossom and Humboldt um, in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived by myself, and uh, I remember being home and and finding out and like because I bought that house in '84, the year after Metallica recorded *Kill 'Em All*, and um, yeah, just one of those things. Like, that's funny you asked me that because I'm thinking back now. I was probably in the kitchen doing something and had something going on. Had the radio on, and it must have come on the radio.
1: I um, fall of. 1986 i was going to school and living in metro toronto actually the name of my apartment building was the maples and it was on the same building as maple leaf gardens and i, I was going to trevis institute of recording arts and you know i was doing what i was doing and across the street was a record store called rock and roll heaven and we used you know the skinheads would be in there metal dudes it was you know a, a, a bowl of everyone would go there and I remember walking in there, and that's how I found out. The guy, uh, you know, the owner, whoever, said, did, you know, did you hear? And he told me, and me and Cheech, my, my roommate and my buddy that I did the metal show with, and we just stopped because six months earlier, we interviewed the band. We drove Kirk to the House of Guitars and Nikki's News after the interview James and Cliff were doing a in-store at the house. We met up there, you know, we met everyone. They gave us laminates hooked up after the show. I mean, that was my experience. My one day That's awesome. with Metallica and, you know, I have my experience with them, but I've been a fan since kill them all buddy of mine. His dad had a store right near the studio when they're recording kill em all. And, he met them and you know, we we're into metal and we didn't know who they were. And they said, wait, you know, wait six months and the album will be actually, it wasn't six months. It was like two, three months later, "Kill 'em all came out. We all got it. Cause we we're the generation of kill them all slayer anthrax. That was us. And yep. so, so wow, Andrew, that's fantastic. It's, um, did you ever keep in touch or ever run into them again or that was it?
2: No, I, I, you know, they got big fast and then, um, you know, once, um, I tried to get a hold of them, um, when they were inducted into the hall of fame, but, uh, couldn't get past, uh, the management company down in New York. But, you know, I had my, my moments, I had my times, um, I, you know, I've got uh, a ton of pictures of us and, um, it was all good times. And, uh, still wish I had that Chevy Impala we used to listen to the tunes in, in after we finished recording. Now That's, you, um,
1: you mentioned earlier tapes. Did you, do you have any tapes? Um, any early demos? The only tapes,
2: the only tapes, well, a lot, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't take stuff out of the studio. Right. I yeah. Mean, yeah. You know, cause, but, uh. Um, the only tapes I have were me and Kurt sitting in the isolation booth and talking about, like, different things about the solos that he was trying to put together for various songs. Um, we did that, I think, two or three times. Um, you know, because Kurt had, you know, it was great. Kurt shows up, uh, and he's got this little thing called an apple crate amp. I'm sure you've seen him back in the day, these little crate amps. It was called the apple crate. <laughs>
1: I do remember uh, him. That's why I'm laughing because I haven't thought about it in 30 years.
2: Yeah. And uh, that's what he brought. And he just used to, you know, sit there and just practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. And, you know, um, it was it was funny because these these guys, you know, they when they were living in the house on Boardman, they'd go out and they'd walk around and do stuff. And there was nothing to do compared to what they were doing on the West Coast in New York City. Right. And, and they, and I remember one time James said to him, he goes, he's like, Andy, he goes, you know, like he goes, the only kind of people that live here are ugly ones. What's up with that? And I was like, have you guys looked in the mirror? And we all laughed, you yeah. know, um, it was like, it was just funny, but there was really nothing for them to do. And that's why it, the the sessions lasted. So it was such a short thing. You know, it was, it was 17 days start to finish. And in modern times, you know, during that time, the interesting thing that during that time that Metallica took 17 days to record Kill 'Em All, All uh, Fleetwood Mac was spending a million dollars just on the drum sounds for Tusk. And, and because Mick Fleetwood is a freak when it comes to details and they spent 12 months and a million dollars in the studio just on the drum sounds for the album and Metallica was in and out in 17 days. And then it was what, June, July, it was 90 days later, the album had been pressed and was released and out for the, the public to enjoy. It was a very, very fast thing. But that worked. They had to concentrate when they came to Rochester. They they played every day. They took a day off, I think once, but it was every afternoon and night, every afternoon and night
1: to did get you, it done. Did you uh, go to the Riverboat show when they came in August with Raven?
2: No, nope.
1: Why not? Um, you know,
2: uh, just my life took a huge turn after I didn't get paid, um, for all of that work, I left the studio and I had to get, I took a job and I started making money and I started buying and rehabbing real estate. And then I, I met my wife and life just took a, a crazy turn and I never really uh, picked up anything in the audio engineering uh, field again because, um, one, I think that I'd probably be dead if I had stayed in the industry uh, with more of an addictive personality that I have, to be blunt and honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, number two, I, I had to follow the money. Uh, my dad had died, and my mom needed somebody to support her, and I I couldn't afford to take any chances, so I had to follow the money and just never really look back.
1: Did you sour... Any bid on Metallica because you didn't get paid?
2: No, no, nope, not at all. I mean, everybody goes, oh, my God, you never got credit for the intro on Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. You know, you never got any album credits for the, the 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 chorus and Seek and Destroy, and I'm like, first of all, I'm not that guy. I, I like, I don't need that. Um, I've never at I just... John, this is the first time I've ever talked about this stuff with anybody publicly. Because um, I I lived that experience. I had those experiences with those guys that I shared with you. And that's worth everything. Nobody can ever take that away from
1: me. I agree. That's exactly what I was thinking when I asked the question. Yeah, sure, you could have gotten paid, but that would have been nice. But if you didn't have – there's one person on this earth that could say – That's me that says bass solo take one. You know, Andrew, this uh, gives me a chance. I'm going to invite you to do a segment we call on Metal Mayhem ROC, Mount Rushmore of Metal.
0: Many have tried. Most have failed. Only a few survived. This is the Mount Rushmore of Metal.
1: This is a little segment we have fun with where we ask our guests, give us their top four. If you can, can you give us your top four Metallica moments that you had while you were engineering the 1983 *Kill 'Em All debut album?
2: Number one, uh, doing the intro to Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. Uh, number two, uh, sitting with Lars... With his drums in the bathroom of the second story of the Rochester Club because it was haunted.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: number three, uh, sitting in the guitar isolation booth with Kurt Hammett and talking out different guitar solos for some songs on Kill 'Em All. And um, number four, uh, taking him to East Rochester on a Wednesday night for 25 cent beers. <laughs>
1: That's just fantastic, dude. That's, uh, that, that's excellent. You know, it compensates the fact that you didn't get paid for it, but you know, you got yourself a lifetime of stories and experience. Now you're sharing, uh, some other, uh, other stories while you're at the Rochester Plaza. Who else did you meet there? Any other rock and roll confessions? Any cool? I think that's just amazing. Getty Lee invited you in. What, what era was that of Getty? of rush what was that like presto that era
2: yeah yep yep it was in that it was what 80 let me think here uh it had to be 84. it had to be 84 so yeah um i met i had a really good conversation with a gentleman by the name of mike cotton mike cotton played keyboards for the tubes uh you remember the tubes right oh
1: yeah the um... Yeah. I remember the MTV Punks video. on dope. Yep. I remember the tubes where um, they're breaking the TV in the video.
2: Yep. Yep. And that, then the, the lead singer had this alter ego called Quay lewd. <laughs> he had like 12 inch heels. It was hysterical. Anyways. Um, those guys, I, I met them, you know, I, I had dinner with Getty Lee one time, um, uh, I had a great conversation with McMars from uh, Motley Crew. Way He's a huge wine connoisseur uh, and ordered like one of the most expensive bottles of wine that I've ever delivered to a room service person. So he was talking about wine and all this stuff and I just remember how like, like how calm and sedate this guy was. You know, but here was this persona on stage, and he didn't really move around much like, because you know his back was so bad.
1: Yeah, but, yeah, he was the.
2: You know, crew was. You know, they were. They owned it. You know, for a long time, and and but you know, calm as calm could be, these guys. You know, um,
1: here's a fun fact. Uh, last year we had the band Last in Line on the show, and we asked Vivian Campbell to share one of his rock and roll confessions and he shared when he was in Rochester when white when he was playing guitar for white snake and white snake was opening up for motley crew this had to be i think 1987 the girls 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 tour the white snake white snake album when both bands were you know bigger than big he said that nikki six and tommy lee took him out for his birthday in rochester because it was his birthday that night they got him so hammered that the next day, that was the most drunk he's ever been, He he claims, in his life. It was, you know, that crazy. But he shared it yeah. with us because it was right here in Rochester, and it was at the Rochester Plaza. And who knows? You may have been five feet from him. It's funny how the six degrees of metal mayhem affects everyone.
2: Yeah, it is funny,
3: isn't it?
1: Well, Andrew, I want to thank you for uh, stopping in today and sharing these lifelong experiences that you have with the Metallica guys for "Kill 'Em All." Is there anything else you want to share with us before we get going?
2: No, I, I John, I, I appreciate you having me. Um, no, I, uh, I think I, I, I think I've emptied my head uh, of its limited capacity uh, of what I can remember. Um, I'll have to go now. You got me curious. I have to dig through some. Uh, some boxes and see if I can find some of those uh, tapes of Kurt from the isolation booth. And I'm going to look at some more pictures tonight and see if I can uh, maybe jog my memory. Like I said, it was a long time ago and I'm getting older every day. You, you know what you had here out of respect for both Paul and, and Johnny? What's that? Is he had two guys that uh, were, they were pushing the envelope, you know, they didn't have the money to do the things they wanted to do. And they were trying to get it done.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And they were sitting there and they were like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, before I got involved in recording when I, to make money for school, I was gotten involved in modeling. And I had a friend who was a photographer over in village gate. It's now called village gate over on North Goodman. Yeah. Uh, Gar- the guy's name was Gary Hurd, and he was a phenomenal photographer especially black and white and Curcio says to me do you know any photographers because we need some album artwork for this album with these metallica kids and so, yeah my buddy gary so i remember you know calling up gary i said hey you know and so you know gary's like yeah I, he goes it, do you know this Curcio guy i said yeah you know and gary's like fine i'll invoice him so i remember taking a uh, metallica up to gary's studio and that's where that awesome raw black and white uh photo came from the back of the album also gary did the anvil on the front with the blood Uh that's all gary gary did all of that really because he invoiced paul and never got paid (laughs) yeah well see. so this has been very helpful for me because you filled in a lot of gaps for stuff that i've always wanted to know and uh
1: is there anything else because maybe i know more than you even can imagine (laughs)
2: maybe i don't know i mean well i just i didn't i didn't even think about talking about the artwork on the album until i i just thought of it that gary did the front cover with the blood and that you know that all came about um at the at the studio with um those guys just talking to gary about what they wanted to do so Uh, and then gary came up with some ideas and he goes well this is what we can do we can get some you know fake blood and we'll do this and i'll get it'll be like a real kind of you know, uh, darkish, uh, you know, kind of tone to it. And then I want to do black and white, a, a black and white portrait of you guys and put it on the back.
1: And this was after, uh, Megaforce um, vetoed the original metal up your ass idea of the knife coming yeah. through co- knife coming through the toilet.
2: Yep. Um, that, that was shot down pretty early
1: do you know how they came about it being called kill them all?
2: Not exactly. Um, James was the lyricist. And so that stuff, I'll, I'll bet you, I'll, I'll bet you a buck <laughs> that, that, that idea came from him. I don't know for certain, but I'll, I'll bet you because James, again, it was in his lyrics. He changed things. He wanted things to say a certain thing. And um, I'll, I'll, I've, I've never heard in any worse who actually out of those guys is going to take credit for the naming of that album. Cliff. But it, I'll bet you it was James. Cliff. Cliff.
1: Cliff. Uh, huh? when, when, he, when he found out that, uh, you know, the brass at the record company said no go, he's like, ah, kill them all.
2: I did not know that. Yeah. So that's why they had that that there's that garage, not a garage, but was sort of an underground album called Cliffemall.
1: Yeah, well, Cliffemall was the uh, VHS that came out after Cliff died. Yep, I'm not sure if it was. I think it was a take on Kill 'em All, but it wasn't called Cliffemall because allegedly Cliff came up with the title Cliffemall or Kill 'em All. Uh... But I've heard that on many occasions that. Cliff them all or kill them all came from cliff. And when they found, like I said, when they found out the brass vetoed metal up your ass in cliff fashion said, ah, kill them all. And, <laughs> and, and Lars or who the powers that be. And it just came about. So, you know, so here's another little angle that the little metal town that could, you know, Rochester used to be called soccer town, USA, But we're uh, up here at Metal Mayhem ROC. We're starting a movement to rename it Metal Town USA
2: because... I think so. There's so much history
3: here.
1: You know, here's a a side note, not to interrupt you, but in 1979, Van Halen came on their Van Halen 2 tour, and they shot three live videos that are on YouTube for Dance the Night Away, um... And two other tracks from Van Halen too, and it's right here in Rochester. And if you go on YouTube and uh, and search mm. it, you the video starts where the band pulls up to the back of the War Memorial. They get out of the limo. All four guys walk in. They're backstage in the you know the little green room. They're cracking beers, and then you know they uh, and then they go on stage, and you know they were shot right here. Uh. Bands have. Judas Priest as recently as I think it was uh, 2012 or 2013 was here for a week rehearsing before the start of their tour. You know, it's just, there's just, just the connection. It's the, the, the the town and we're really proud of what's been going on and it's great. And it's, you know, it's people like you that have at the right place at the right time, but you took, you know, Andrew, you took a, you took advantage of the situation you uh, had an op- you had an opportunity and you you know you wanted to get into engineering you walked in there and you made it happen some call some call it lucky because it was metallica but hey the good ones sometimes luck is all you need
2: yeah you know the old the old saying the harder you work the luckier you get and i just, i had never had anything handed to me in my life i, I you know my parents didn't have any money anything I ever wanted, I had to go out there and get it. And I, you know, carry that on throughout my life. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, I guess I, I'm glad I had it hard early on because, you know, it teaches you the fight for stuff. So.
1: And are you yeah. still uh, up to date on metal You get into some new stuff or are you just like, like what you like and you're just enjoying your fifties?
2: <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying my fifties for a couple more months, John. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I like what I like. I haven't really gotten into uh, anything. The only new music that I've listened to uh, recently was a a band that started off as a Rush tribute band and now has gone out on their own, and the musicality is amazing. They're called YY Not. Wow. We'll take off on the YYZ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, check them out. It's YY Not, N-O-T. It's all one word and uh, they're amazing. But, you know, metal, uh, when I'm cycling, I, I'm going to throw on some Metallica and just let it, you know, just let it play. And I haven't really spent a lot of time uh, looking for new stuff. Uh, but it's funny, some of the old stuff that crops up, like um, I had a friend from high school, and he had a cousin, and his cousin's name, I mean, I, I I'll be really phenomenally interested if you know who this is. The guy's name is Mike Marconi. And he was Alice Cooper's guitar player for a while. And he left Cooper and he formed a band called Billion Dollar Babies. Hmm. Do you remember them?
1: No, no, but.
2: From Rochester. And you would think like. You know, you're a businessman, so you lead Alice Cooper, and then you form a band called Billion Dollar Babies. But Cooper, being the guy that he was, and because Marconi, they left on such good terms, he's like, yeah, he goes, you can use that, it's fine, good luck.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> what, cool, right? Yeah, no, that's totally cool. What's the uh, type of music? Is it a Cooper cover, or is it? Oh,
2: no, it was like they were, it was all original stuff. It was like that 70s hard yeah, rock.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. So, all right. Well, uh, Andrew, Andrew Robleski, engineer. Yeah, I did it. He's the he was part of the crew that recorded "Kill 'Em All Metallica back in the early 80s. I want to thank you again for joining us and stay in touch and best of luck to you, bud.
2: All right, John, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for uh, letting me uh, letting you pick my brain.
1: You got it, bud
0: metal for life thanks for listening to metal mayhem roc check out our websites at metal mayhem and metalforever.com for information on upcoming concerts podcasts archives and all sorts of info please like follow and share with everyone even your non-metal friends catch us next time on wlfe dv radio